welcome to another new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Ed. And I am Dr. G. Welcome, everybody, as we are tracing the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. And you couldn't really ask for a more pivotal moment for Rome at the moment. We've been going through the early Republican days and we found ourselves well and truly stalled in the 2nd December because it's just so horrible. It's taking a long time to get through all of the detail, but I think this also emphasizes just how significant a moment this is for Romans and the way that they think about their history. Absolutely. So we have been dealing with the aftermath of two particular crimes committed by the Decembers, the murder of the plebeian hero Sicius Dentatus and the murder by her father of a plebeian maiden called Virginia, but the Decembers made him do it. And that's why they're responsible. So last time what we saw was that Virginius, the father of the murdered maiden, had decided that he was going to go and seek military assistance. Achilles, her fiancé, and her uncle Numitorius do the same thing with a different uh, group of armed forces. And together they end up making their way back to Rome, through Rome, and they pretty much set up camp on the Aventine. I think the message is clear. They are trying to menace their way out of the Decemberate. And, you know, it seems to be relatively strategic. I mean, there is now a huge military body sitting on top of the Aventine. And after some uh, awkward teething moments where this new force of plebeian uprising is like, well, I don't know who will speak on our behalf. Uh, they have gotten together and they've chosen a body of men, 10 in fact, to match the Decembers toe to toe. And they've started to make some demands of the Roman senators in terms of who they want to talk to. Absolutely. And so really the only people that they're interested in talking to in my account are Valerius and Horatius, who are patricians which means we look at them slightly askance, but Mm. they seem to be not too awful at the moment because they also don't like the 2nd December and think that they are rubbish. Yeah, and this has meant that by default they've been slightly sympathetic uh, to the plebeian cause. At least they're not so pro the December as to make them unapproachable for other Roman citizens. So this puts them in a sort of like, well, I suppose if you have to be a patrician, this is all right. (laughs) Absolutely. So we wound up last time with the plebeians who are encamped on the Aventine awaiting Valerius and Horatius to do some negotiation. And Valerius and Horatius doing a bit of negotiating of their own in the Senate, in my account. They're refusing to go until the Decembers finally step out of office and the Decembers were like, no (laughs) the laws the laws we're going to call on the laws and say that until they're enacted we can't leave our office that would be ludicrous and this is the broader context in which this whole situation sits really because we've got effectively 10 tables of laws and the decision was made that there needed to be another couple so the famous 12 tables of rome is the ultimate output of the decemberate But what we're seeing is that behind the scenes, those decimals do not want to give up power. And this is becoming the increasing issue here. Absolutely it is. 
All right, Dr. G. Well, I think that's probably enough of a recap. So we're at the tail end of the second December. We are heading straight into the second succession where the plebs go, we're out. We're out of this thing. We don't. We no longer are part of Rome. You can have it. You see that city? I hate it. <laughs> so let's get into the details. So you are reading Livy. I would love to know what Livy has to say at this point in time. Well, whew, I feel like the adrenaline is really coursing through my veins right now because we're in such a standoff with the whole, you know, armed forces on the Aventine Hill. And I felt like this might actually be a good moment to quickly pause and talk a little bit about the Aventine because this is something that I feel will come up throughout our account so I found this really interesting book, which has been published fairly recently um, by a scholar whose name I feel like I'm going to butcher because I'm not sure what the pronunciation should be. But I'm going to go with Nignone because I feel like she might be Italian, maybe by heritage. But she wrote, she's written a really interesting book, which is really all about the Aventine because the Aventine often crops up in connection to plebeians. It's seen as having like a special connection with them. And I must admit, I feel like this is something that we have mentioned ourselves in the past without much question, because for in, in the 20th century, there was a particularly notable book published like right at the very beginning, which kind of established this connection between the plebeians and the Aventine and, and characterized the Aventine as being uh, a special place for the plebeians or something that had a particularly plebeian character and it has become really widely accepted to the point that we don't really talk about this characterization and whether it is valid or not but this was a really interesting read because it kind of called into question whether we should be associating the Aventine with the plebeians and we'll go into that in a bit more detail later on perhaps but one of the things that this uh, particular scholar highlights is how clever it is to actually encamp on the Aventine because it's actually not, even though it's one of the seven hills of Rome, um, its position is good in the sense that it's not right in the centre of Rome. It's kind of on the, on the outer. And also, it's actually not enclosed by the Pomerium, not for a long time. And so technically... Whilst you are obviously doing like a military menacing thing by being like right there with all these armies and looking at the rest of Rome being like, yes, yes, you could be mine. At the same time, you're not violating the Pomerium per se. I mean, they have in the sense that they've marched through Rome in our accounts, I think, to get there. But, you know, now that they've actually set up camp, they're not inside the sacred boundary of Rome. So I just thought I'd highlight that right now. This does lend a revolution a little bit more legitimacy, doesn't it, uh, from a Roman perspective? I think so. I think so. But anyway, we're going to talk about the Aventine more later. But oh, for yeah. now, for now, <laughs> let's get back to the narrative. All right. So in my account, there is this guy called Marcus Duilius, 
okay, who ha- who's an ex-Plebeian tr- um, Tribune. I do feel like I remember that name. He has come forward and he has told the plebs that are on the Aventine, look, the Senate are freaking useless. They have decided nothing. They are just fighting amongst themselves. <laughs> it's the usual, guys. <laughs> and so once Duilius has told the people on the Aventine what is happening, they decide that maybe it's time to make a move and leave the Aventine for the sacred mount. Because Julius is really driving home this idea that the patricians would have to see the city absolutely deserted to really understand the seriousness of their situation and that choosing that particular location would remind them of the first secession and the firmness that the plebeians had shown in the past in getting what they wanted. So the army on the Aventine starts packing up and heading out to the Sacred Mount and like their ancestors who had gone before them, they do this really peacefully. They're not like wreaking havoc as they go. And after the army has decamped, then comes the plebeian civilians, really anybody who was able to make the journey. This seems to be the final straw and they decide that they're going to also go to the Sacred Mount and they're going to stay there, obviously, until they get what they want, which is for the tribunes to be restored to them. And this obviously essentially is demanding the end of the 2nd December because all the normal magistracies have been suspended whilst the 2nd December is in place. Wow. Okay. So the citizens in Rome are like, I'm jack of this. I'm heading off to this hill. This hill has some potential. We're just going to stay over here and keep out of the way. Well, this, yeah, this is essentially the idea. And so they start marching out basically. Um, And it seems that they're followed a little way by their own women and children who are obviously scared at at what is happening Um, because after what has happened to Virginia, I'm sure nobody feels safe (laughs) from the Don't leave the children behind. (laughs) Yeah, so they follow them a little bit way out and they're like please don't don't leave us like this you know we're scared to be left behind but nonetheless they march out they're like this is something we've got to do and so off they head to the sacred mount which is further away from rome than the aventine oh look this is fascinating to me because i am reading diodorus siculus at the moment who uh is a great epitomator but maybe not a great historian and this doesn't rate a mention in his account. And then I also am reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who breaks back in after an unspecified amount of time where the source breaks off. And the detail that is offered there also as yet, and I've been reading through it, but, you know, one is never quite finished with Dionysius of Halicarnassus, so you never know, it might be coming up. Um, but as far as I've read so far of the detail that he provides for what is happening with this stuff in the Aventine and what is progressing with this relationship between patrician and plebeian, the idea of the citizens in the city having a role, just it also doesn't come up for mention. Yeah, well, I think I think this is an interesting parallel that we've got actually developing here in the sense of what Livy has told us before about the first secession of the plebs. So just a quick recap, the first secession of the plebs took place in around 494 BCE. And that is a similar situation in which the plebs just got jack of what the patricians were doing, uh, even though they obviously thought, oh, yeah, we've overthrown the monarchy fairly recently. This is going to be great. 
didn't turn out to be so great. They were sick of the patricians and their behaviour and what was happening. There was lots of debt, you know, there was lots of inequality. They were sick of being, you know, the, the people that went out and fought for Rome but didn't see the benefit. And the last time that they did this, it did work in the sense that they apparently got the tribunes. I mean, this is where the tribunes apparently come from, amongst other things, but mostly it's the tribunes that particular secession is famous for. And that took place on the Monsacur. So mm-hmm. in Livy's account, it is a very deliberate decision by the plebeian civilians that are left inside the city to go there because they're trying to remind the elites that are left, hey, we've done this before, we will do it again, and we will stay there until we get what we want, just like happened before. So there's obviously a very deliberate parallel between the place that is associated with the first secession and the second secession. Look, as a historian, I have some questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they partly relate to the to the idea that, to me, it doesn't seem to make a lot of logical sense for Roman citizens to be like, you know what, we've got to get out of this city. Let's go to our own hill somewhere else, completely undefended, when they could just join the plebeian forces on the Aventine. I mean, why not do that? Well, it's a bit of a tricky situation. It is obviously a bit of a messy story, but essentially the people in the city are following the lead of the people on the Aventine, who obviously are right there. I mean, the Aventine is part of Rome. It is connected to the city. And it, and it is an interesting example because it does make us realise that we are drawing on something historical here. And as we've highlighted before, there are a lot of questions around the historicity of this second secession and even the, even the second December and all this kind of stuff that we're going through. Obviously, we know the 12 tables happened, but exactly how they came about uh, and this idea of a second secession, it is somewhat questioned. Certainly, the way that this story unfolds in our sources Scholars have highlighted that there is an uncanny resemblance between the second Decemvirate and a similar event that took place in Athens following the Peloponnesian War. So after the Peloponnesian War and Athens obviously lost that, democracy was kind of done <laughs> there for a while. <laughs> it's over, guys. We lost. We lost, yeah. Um, And so they decided to bring in a board of 30 who were supposed to draw up a new constitution and obviously some new laws and that sort of thing. But instead, they become tyrants. So we've got this time of the 30 tyrants. And eventually, they are kicked out of office and democracy is restored. So people have highlighted that there's like some weird similarities between the second December and what happens with the second secession here. So there's a little bit of that going on. But as we've highlighted before, that doesn't mean that none of these things actually happened. People like Livy and Dionysius and Diodorus are drawing on analysts probably from, you know, the sort of second century, maybe a little bit before. Uh, And they do refer to them from time to time. So they are drawing on some details that have been provided by earlier sources. The question is exactly what? what what is real, what is not what are they inventing? What are they not? It's And it's hard to say because they, as we've highlighted again and again with the struggle of the orders, they can't help but read the clash between the patricians and the plebeians 
a little bit through the lens of what they have witnessed in recent years and their own experiences of things like civil war. Which is fair enough. And it, it all makes total sense from that perspective that as a historian, they're trying to come to grips with the source material that they have, but there's also going to be massive gaps. Um, we know that they don't have heaps of sources. Uh, one of them would be the annal lists of consuls that would be um, held in certain spaces in Rome and you could go and just directly consult them. But how you make sense of those lists and how do you weave a narrative around a couple of names well, that's going to require some more research and some more thinking and talking to families and things like that. So as a measure of what is sort of going on in these other sources, um, Diodorus doesn't really mention this at all. He talks about the decemvirs getting um, a little bit antsy about the situation on the Aventine, and they're interested in heading out with the young patricians and just sort of uh, doing a test of arms. So there's kind of like this vibe <laughs> that in Diodorus, and this doesn't seem that plausible to me, one, because the Decemvirs are, are sort of scattered everywhere and presumably have only just reconvened as they've lost their armies who are now decamped to the Aventine. If they've gotten together and they're like, yeah, let's make it a fight, a proper fight. And it's like, but they don't want a war. They don't want to do this with arms. They want to have 10 men against 10 men and they're going to send in their young hot patrician proxies to stand in their place and it's like yeah. it just sounds like one of those like like organized slightly underground boxing matches that could happen and I was like guys this is not going to solve things um, <laughs> but this is what Diodorus gives us as like the thing that's going on for the Decemvirs right now which is kind of fun Dionysus of Halicarnassus uh has not kicked back in yet interesting okay well I can maybe throw in yet another source into our ring here. Ooh, <laughs> I do it. I love sources. <laughs> Crazy. There is actually mention of some of these events just in passing in some other sources like Cicero. So it's not, Cicero obviously is not writing like a narrative history like Livy or Dionysius, but he is writing a little bit before Livy and Dionysius. And we do get these sorts of throw in, throwaway mentions of some of these events happening in some of the speeches that he is making. So, for example, um, there, is, there was apparently a reference to these events in the Pro-Cornelio. There was a reference to the Aventine. So, again, we've got mention of the Aventine being involved in these sorts of events. And then in a different work of Cicero's in the De Republica, he does also mention that the plebeians had apparently gone to the Monsacur again, probably because that's where the first secession had taken place, and then they had proceeded to the Aventine. So again, we do have mention of mm. two different places, uh, just in just maybe in slightly different orders or used in different ways. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Definitely, there is that connection, and it and again, it is really interesting to think about it because that confusing nature of having these two different locations if it wasn't true you think it would be like like it would never have happened like they would never have incorporated it or that over time one of them would just would have got forgotten just for simplification purposes that you would just stick to you know the major one that so it's not confusing like where they are and what they're doing but um as, as was highlighted by this scholar the fact that they are sort of both mentioned has to sort of give us pause about you know the events that we're dealing with here and again, I'm going to come back to the Aventine. 
the idea of the Aventine having this particular connection to the plebs and this particular importance to them, it might be something to do with this law that we mentioned from a few years before the... Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we mentioned that in around 456, we think, BCE, there was the passing of this law, okay, the Lex Achillea, and it supposedly had something to do with the land on the Aventine potentially being opened up perhaps for plebeian use. Mm. It's a bit, a little bit unclear perhaps. Yeah, there's that touching on sort of public lands and redistribution that's happening there that we're not really quite sure about. Exactly, which does seem to gel with what people at the time were concerned about in terms of the inequality of, of wealth and, and land distribution and that sort of thing, far more so than the 12 tables seem to be a response to that. Um, but yeah, so there has been that kind of association between the Aventine and possibly the opening up of some public land of some kind. But as was highlighted by this particular academic, it's a bit unclear as to how that would kind of continue in the sense that the vast majority of people are plebeian, not patrician. So is it possible to say that this particular place has a especially plebeian character when really the vast majority of Rome is occupied by people who aren't patricians? It would be far easier to have like a hill that had a patrician character. <laughs> this whole place is plebeian, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go anywhere without seeing them. It is interesting because obviously like you're you're right in terms of like the numeral aspect of it there's there's just to be an elite you have to be lesser you have to be a much smaller group so what does that mean to say that a place is maybe especially plebeian and it might be to do with some of the symbolic elements of the place and having laws like this which actually establish rights because one of the things that we know the plebeians really are always fighting for is more rights, please. It seems that the Aventine has carved out this reputation either via law or perhaps because of the sorts of things that happen there as being maybe special to plebeians in a way that other areas don't get to be special. Well, and this is where I think the fact that our sources are writing a bit later comes into play because another thing that this scholar highlights is the fact that Gaius Gracchus does end up fleeing uh, when things go really badly in his career to the Aventine, one of the places where he kind of tries to do something. I mean, exactly what we're not sure, but it's it's certainly where uh, one of the stops, uh, one of his final stops really that he makes when things are going badly for him. And the Gracchi brothers are obviously highly associated with this idea of land redistribution and the opening up of the Agapublicus. And it's possible that Gaius Gracchus went there because we know that there was that bronze column set up for that law from 456. It's possible that he went there for that reason, like that there was some sort of symbolic connection in his own mind between what he was working for and you know what was happening in Rome at the time or is it or is it <laughs> or is it that he went there and later sources have then connected the Gracchi affair and the tribunes of the plebs and all of this kind of stuff with what went before and so it's just become this big <laughs> a big soupy mess of stories people tell yeah each other. <laughs> yeah and so yeah it's kind of it's kind of hard to it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing I suppose in that we're not 
entirely sure, obviously, what Gaius Gracchus might have been trying to do. Yes, well, I mean, Gaius Gracchus is a long time in our future, so I'm going to leave aside the complexities of his situation. Oh, for sure. I just wanted to highlight that once again, (laughs) I feel like it is a constant thing with the struggle of the orders because even though we're we're telling this story that that is set in the early Republic, because our sources are writing after the, the affair with the Gracchi brothers, their very violent deaths and the failure of their attempts to kind of address this whole land inequality issue and all of those sorts of things, it has to be highlighted that when we're talking about the historicity of the Second Secession, that there is, again, potentially a connection to the Gracchi brothers coming through here somewhere, um, even if it's just in terms of how they're conceiving the space or the topography of what is happening at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where the Aventine is sort of generating a reputation as it goes. And to what extent is it being thrown back when we're reading these kinds of sources? And to what extent are we trying to throw it forward by then reading these sources and thinking about this kind of stuff? Yeah, Um, And it's like, but as far as like our our sources suggest, I mean, there's this convergence on the Aventine and maybe this is one of the events that lends it that significance. And maybe it's a projection back in time. And I suppose we'd have to lay some money down and then maybe do some time travel. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I mean, I'd I'd love, I'd love to settle it. I don't want to tell you necessarily what Diodorus is going to say next, because what he says next basically wraps everything up and then we're done. Um, I have a little bit more detail. I have a little bit more detail. But I do have, I do have a whole host of things that happen once some discussions take place, but there's a bit of a gap in each of the sources that I'm reading about what those discussions are and how these things come to be. So I'm interested if there's anything that you've got that sort of might bridge the gap until I get to a couple of people who might be quite important. (laughs) I think I do. I think I do. So Rome is now deserted because everyone's either on the Aventine or the Monsacre. I mean, and when I say everyone... (laughs) I mean the men, the people that count, obviously. Uh. <laughs> also, or so it would seem. So it would seem. <laughs> so the forum's pretty much deserted. There's just some elderly men who have been left behind hanging around. And so when the senators notice this, they're kind of like, ha, huh, okay. <laughs> and Herates and Valerius leap upon this as their moment to highlight how stupid this whole situation is. And they're like, senators is this really what you're willing to let happen? Are you seriously going to allow Rome to just go down the gurgler rather than stand up to the Decembers? You are just letting them run riot and get away with everything. The plebeians are clearly not going to give in until they are restored their tribunes. So you have a choice. You give them back the tribunes or you don't get the plebeians back at all. And I think we can clearly see where that's going to end up. Are you seriously going to risk conflict like this? Okay. He even says, and I like this line, we will sooner dispense with patrician magistrates than they with plebeians. So he's like, they, yeah, they will, they will <gasps> hold out. They will hold out longer. You know, you are going to have serious problems on your hands. So 
the Decembers are finally kind of overwhelmed by the common sense of the situation. (laughs) (laughs) That took a while, but I'm glad we got there. (laughs) Yeah. And they say, finally, yes, we will concede. Okay. We will step down from our office on one major condition. We need personal protection. (laughs) I'd like a bodyguard, please, because everybody hates me now. Yeah, they're like looking out for numero uno, as always, (laughs) right towards the very end. And so they're like, we don't want to be put forward as like sacrificial lambs to make the plebeians happy because that could obviously be one way of getting back in the good book. So you have to assure us that we are going to be safe if we are going to agree to these demands. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> did, that, did that come up in any of your accounts or am I? No. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. So this means that finally, in Livy's account, Valerius and Horatius can finally go and actually talk to the plebs and actually negotiate with them, okay, and see yeah, what is going to happen. I think this is where I might come back into play at some point. (laughs) Okay. All right. So they've obviously been sent to negotiate their return. And I think we could kind of guess what kind of concessions they are willing to make and where they have to draw the line. They know that they have to make sure the decimbers aren't part of the bargain (laughs) in terms of not being handed over to them to be like lynched or something like that. The Beans, of course, are thrilled to see Valerius Naradius because they just love these guys. They think they're amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And so Achilles ends up being at the forefront of negotiations and that kind of tracks because he has been a major part of this account, obviously being Virginia's fiance and and he was also, he's either a tribune or related to a tribune. Yeah. He's got, he's got a, a pedigree there as well. Well, again, and this is, this is again where we could highlight the kind of way that our sources like to throw in these parallels. A lot of the names that we see come up in the second uh, secession are names that are associated with particular people like on, the, on the plebeian side. They're associated with like famous plebeian tribune families. And on the patrician side, even, we've got some, you know, familiar names coming through, obviously, with like Valerius and Aradius. So there are definitely some names which are cropping up, which I think are meant to take us back to particular family traits or particular families that were associated with even the first secession or, you know, things like that. So, yeah, definitely no surprises there. So he he makes the kind of demands that we we would be expecting. He says, we want the return of the tribunes and, most importantly, we want the right of appeal and we also don't want to be punished for essentially staging a mutiny. <laughs> we don't want any, we don't want to be punished for the second, uh, the, you know, the second secession. That can't be something that has to be dealt with. We just have to forget about that. But he does also put forward that they want to punish the Decembers personally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's quite something, isn't it? Oh. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. I think I can jump in here with a a little bit of Dionysus of Halicarnassus. So he broke off, obviously left out some really good stuff in whatever chunk is missing. Yeah. Um, And now we're back uh, with Valerius Batidas and Horatius Babatus. So our two pro-plebeian patricians, (laughs) as it were. Pro-plebeian or just pro themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Reading the winds of change and writing them. Yeah. 
Uh, and they end up, after discussions with the plebeians, um, it basically opens up with this section with the start of the sentence being like, after the overthrow of the Decemberate. So it's like literally like all of the detail of how that overthrow happened <laughs> lost to us from Dionysus and Halicarnassus. But they start then working with the plebeians on the things that have been agreed upon and sort of the promises. And they're like, okay, we need to like really reform Rome at this point. And one of the things that is initially on the table is a change to the way that the tribal assembly operates. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so the tribal assembly is where you get together all of the tribes of Rome, hypothetically, every Roman is part of a tribe. Mm. There are 31 rural tribes and four urban tribes, apparently. These numbers are a little bit flexible at times. <laughs> uh, and basically what they've asked for is to have the decisions made by tribal assemblies to be on the same footing and encompass uh, all of Rome uh, in the same way that centuriate assemblies operate. So that decisions made in this way will affect the whole city and can't just be considered plebeian decisions for plebeian issues anymore. They have to be considered <laughs> Roman issues. <laughs> That that makes sense to me because, as we've just talked about, they are the majority of the people as far as we can tell. <laughs> yeah, but up until now, apparently, at least the implication in Dionysius is that these uh, tribal assemblies have often been dismissed in terms of the decisions that they've been made by patricians who are like, eh, but it's not really about us. It's not really a decision that affects what we do, is it? <laughs> Sorry about that. You guys have fun at your tribal assembly well this is a pretty big this is a pretty big move because it essentially means that they have like lawmaking power for the whole of rome doesn't it yes and they're about to use some of that oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> uh, and so this is it's basically papering over legally what has been a legalistic divide between patricians and plebeians and the power that they operate mm. and and it's at that point where it becomes really clear that they have to have tribunes again. Yes. And a whole bunch of them get voted in. Very good. Excellent. And the first thing they decide to do, as you've already flagged, is go straight for the decimbeers. Well, yeah. <laughs> We've been waiting for their comeuppance for ages. <laughs> it's going to happen. Uh, and they're like, it is a fitting occasion for us to start to punish the Decemvirs. Okay, well, before you go any further, I feel like, see, this now it's you who's racing ahead, Dr. G. It's you who's a little speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> and my source broke off and then it only just came back and I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to throw in a few more details. So there's actually quite a poignant moment, which doesn't really add anything to the, what's actually happening in terms of the developments. But I thought it was interesting that Livy chose to include this. So after Achilles has made his demands you know, about tribunes and not being punished in the Decemvirs and whatnot. Valerius and Horatius respond very reasonably by saying, to be honest, what you were asking for, for the most part, should have been willingly given to you by the Senate. You shouldn't have had to really be in this situation because after all, we can see you just want your liberty. That's all you're after. And that is something that every Roman should have. You shouldn't have had to you know, come to this 
incredibly extreme reaction in order to get the Senate to hand this back to you. And so we can understand that you're angry because you have been pushed this far. However, we can only understand and excuse the anger that you are feeling. It would be wrong for us to give in to your basest desires. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. What you are asking for in terms of personally punishing the Decembers is wrong and it can't be allowed to happen. And this is the moment that I love and I just have to throw it in there. And this is a direct quote from the English translation, obviously, but you know what I mean. Will the time never come when our state shall rest from punishments visited either by the patricians on the Roman plebs or by the plebs on the patricians? Oh, guys, come on. When, when have the plebeians ever done anything that has diminished the power of the... Uh, I know. Libby. I know. But he's basically allowing Valerius and Horatius to say, guys, we need to put an end to the cycle of hate. <laughs> You know, there's been hatred on both sides. Yeah. Uh, and then he right. and then he puts it in this very, again, very poignant way, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the first session and how we had that big speech about Rome being a big body and, you know, <laughs> the feeding of the stomach and blah, blah, blah. That, that oh, yeah, terrible. the body metaphor, yeah. Yeah, the, the <laughs> metaphor about, you know, everybody has to work to feed the state, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so... They then go on to say, look, realistically, you need protection more than something to attack with. So they, they, they phrase it in the sense of you need a shield more than you need a sword right now, which is why we're really happy with the whole tribute thing. But we don't want you to be going on the offensive. Okay. <laughs> no personal vendettas, please. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he's like, once you get, once you get all your usual rights back, then just having the protection that comes with that should be enough because after all, aren't we all citizens? Aren't we all equal? We're all afforded equal protection. We don't have to worry about, you know, being attacked or attacking others. It's getting a little idyllic here. I was going to say, but some are more equal than others. Yeah. And then they sort of concede that, look, once you've got your tribune of the plebs back, I suppose that, you know, things might get a little hairy between us, you know, maybe maybe there'll be some tension between the patricians and the plebeians. But even if that is the case and you guys come after us, it will be done properly through the courts. And isn't that what Rome is all about? <laughs> Got to follow the form, you know, yeah. there's a tradition here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just, I had to throw that in there because I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> Even though I like Valerius and Horatius, laying it on a bit thick, guys. <laughs> and also, this seems like a moment where Livy has offered us a speech and I don't have one from Dionysius. It's amazing. <laughs> I told you, I told you. So what happens next is that they, of course, go back to the Senate and explain what the plebeians have demanded. The Decembers are, quite frankly, relieved that this is where negotiations have ended up. Uh, Appius knows, however, that he's going to be targeted when <laughs> the plebs have everything back in their usual position. So he, he's knowing he's knowing that he is unpopular, okay, and he's feeling a bit dicey about this whole situation, okay. But he's like, I will 
I will give up the Decemvirate, I suppose, even though I know that realistically you're just setting us up to be attacked <laughs> when everything is back to normal. <laughs> wow. So he sort of flounces out of there and is like, well, I'm in danger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really happy, guys. So a decree is passed by the Senate officially declaring the rule of the 2nd Decemvirate to be over. And also, also <laughs> saying that there will be an election for the Tribune of the Plebs to be held and that no one shall be punished for the second secession. Wow. Yes. I actually feel like this might be a really good place to like wrap up this episode, actually. Oh, but um, wait, Dr. G, I've got one <laughs> final thing I have to throw at you because you're going to like this. This is personally very appropriate mm. to you. Ooh. The election of the Tribune of the Plebs is to be held by one Quintus Furious, the Pontifex Maximus. <gasps> Ooh. I know. One, there's a Furious in here. Um, exactly. And two, a Pontifex Maximus. <laughs> yes, and I don't think we have talked about the Pontifex Maximus much so far not, in not- the movie. Not for a long time. I mean, yeah. the last time we sort of encountered the Pontifex Maximus would be when we talked about Numa. So <laughs> probably, I would say, <laughs> which is like right back at the start of the Roman regal period. Yeah. Um, but the, the it's good to know that there is a Pontifex Maximus. And I'm fascinated by them calling an election. That, that's what I thought was interesting. But I thought you might also be able to quickly tell our listeners exactly what the purpose of the Pontifex Maximus is. Like, who is this person? <laughs> who is this guy? <laughs> and what is he doing? Yeah. Um, so strictly speaking, his name means the chief of the pontiffs, which means he's in charge of the college of pontiffs. And then you're like, okay, yeah, but what's a pontiff? And that is a little bit harder to gauge. We think that they're mostly in charge of keeping everything running in in a sort of a ritual sense so they've Mm. got they've got a sort of a feeler on each of the sort of like priestly bodies that Rome has and there's quite a few and they're just making sure that things are going according to plan so they kind of like oversee everything like the managerial body but they also do perform uh, important rituals themselves as well yeah and this is where going right back to somebody like Plutarch is often sort of like maligned as a source although I quite like him but he does in his life of Numa he does look at the etymology of uh, the Pontifex because this term seems to have uh, sort of different ways that it could be interpreted some people argue that Pontifex comes from potens meaning Mm. power uh, which would give a particular sort of uh, sheen of meaning to what these priests are about But the other one that they like to sort of etymologically make the connection to is the ponds, the bridge. And for Rome, this is really important because there there aren't many bridges, particularly not in this period. There is, we think, one wooden bridge, which I think has come up in our narrative episodes previously. I believe so. I think people were pushed off it during an election. (laughs) Well, no, that was a different bridge again, actually. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. One bridge, <laughs> one bridge that crosses the Tiber at this point. Right. So that becomes a, a really strategic area um, in order to protect oh, yes. that we bridge. Oh, yeah, we have talked about that bridge. 
Didn't they destroy it at one point, like a long time ago? <laughs> yeah, you could, sometimes you get rid of it because it's easier to not have the bridge there because then people can't cross the river. The Tiber is really quite wide and you go to if you go to Rome now, you'll see that they've built up the walls to make it more stable so it doesn't flood as frequently. Right. But it's a quick-flowing river that's drawing on glacial stuff up in the mountains all the way out to the sea. So it's, it's running quickly. Um, it's usually not a that pleasant experience to try and swim in it uh you don't want to be trying to cross it in armor to attack Rome <laughs> so easier to just take down the bridge um so this idea of connection and bridging things is also associated with the okay. of the case right um but yeah I mean this idea of combining uh the fact that he this guy is a pontifex this furious character I don't think that's the reason why he's involved in this election stuff right because yeah. these positions tend to be held by people in the patriciate class anyway. True. And so they're often holding them while they do other things. Well, as we all see, at the moment, the plebs obviously have survival as their main issue in the sense that they are constantly worried, obviously, about debt and having enough land and those sorts of very practical issues. But gradually, as we go on through the struggle of the orders, because even though the second secession might be happening and it might be over, it does not mean the struggle of the orders is over. One of the things that they fight for is the opening up of these religious offices to them, as well as political offices. And as we've talked about before, that seems to be one of the things that distinguish the patricians in the early republic, the fact that they, they do really have an, a monopoly on the main political magistracies as well as religious offices and therefore how do you question their authority and their power in a society like this they have control over everything yeah and it's obviously those tensions are going to continue to play out um, as we'll see I think as we follow this story further as well but I think we're probably at the time where it might be time for the partial pick <laughs> Oh, no. No, no, no. I've got one more <laughs> sentence, you. One more sentence. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, I'm done. I'm like, if I keep going in my sources, I've got to talk for another 30 minutes because, like, I, I delve into a whole new level of detail. So I just keep on trying to wrap this one up. Sorry. I know. I'm sorry. I just got one more sentence that I have to add, which is that the Decembers officially resigned before the people and they're thrilled. Now it's time for the partial pick. <laughs> All right, Dr. G. So this is where we have five different categories against which we assess Rome's progress for this episode. And they have the potential to win 10 golden eagles in each category, adding up to a total of 50. So what is our first category? Our first category is military cloud. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't be like that. I mean, it's very intimidating. All of those people on the Aventine... I mean, it certainly produced some results. It is really weird that they're all dressed up and they've got nowhere to go. <laughs> but I think there is there is an element of clout there. Maybe not in the traditional Roman sense. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll give them a one because they don't really they don't really do anything apart from look menacing. <laughs> that seems to be enough. I mean, yeah. the Desenvirs have just retired. Oh. But is it though? I mean, this is the thing. If we look at my account, it's really only when everyone clears out of the city that the Senate and the Decemvirs are finally willing to negotiate. They don't seem too concerned about the armies just hovering over their shoulder. 
I still want some confirmation of that. I've got two sources in front of me. Neither of them mentioned that detail. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, look, I, I definitely think that that obviously has, that obviously comes into the considerations, but they don't do a lot with it. So, <laughs> oh, well, you know, some people, uh, it's about what you have and how you use it. Uh, maybe sitting on a hill's enough. <laughs> I still think of one. How many do you uh, want to give them? One is fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Our second category is diplomacy. Okay, now for once, the Romans actually have given us quite a lot to work with. Oh, yeah, so there's quite a surprising amount of diplomacy, isn't there? There's backwards and forwards conversations, there's negotiations, there's people stepping down when they've been asked repeatedly to step down. <laughs> to be honest, they're lucky that they're stepping down and not being thrown off the freaking tarpeh and rock. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, so definitely Valerius and Horatius, stellar job. I mean, they might be a little caught up in their own patrician awesomeness. I was going to say, yeah. They're doing, they're doing a good job in terms of getting the Senate to see reason. That obviously helps to get the Decimus to see reason, and they do also negotiate well with the plebeians. So it's all happening. It's all happening. All right, so I think we're looking at like maybe a seven. Yeah, I think a seven is fair. Because just, and I'm taking those points off because they were a bit douchey in Livy's account. <laughs> <laughs> but, and also it took them so long to get here. Well, to be fair, that, that wasn't their fault. But the Senate's <laughs> it, fault, yes. It's yes. definitely somebody's fault. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, 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 definitely. All right, this leads us to expansion. No. <laughs> yeah no definitely not that's a hard zero from me yeah once again i think we just need to quickly highlight the fact that with rome being in a situation with the plebeians out of the city and military forces encamped on the aventine or so it would seem that gives the rome's enemies an open window to conquer rome so yeah definitely no expansion they can be they can be pouring in and nobody would even notice at this point exactly exactly (laughs) All right, hard zero there. This leads us into Virtus. Hmm. I don't actually think we see a lot of that. I mean, it's not that people are doing particularly bad things in this episode, and there are definitely some good things that are happening, but I don't know if I'd classify it as Virtus. Oh, no. I don't think any of them are standing out as, like, behaving in a way that represents Roman masculinity in its finest form. No. Um, So, yeah, I'd say that's a zero as well, really. Definitely, because Appius is still alive and still a total douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will stop that man from being nope. terrible. <laughs> no, nope. unrepentant, unrepentant. <laughs> Classic. Uh, and finally is the citizen score. Now, I think this depends very much on which source you read. To <laughs> That's why I wanted to get in that final sentence. <laughs> I see, I see. The people were happy. <laughs> The people are happy. I, well, I suppose that's better than being unhappy. Um, and they also leave for the monster in your source as well. So at least the menfolk do. So there's a sense in which they're at least making progressive steps to improve their situation because they're like, I'm not putting up with Rome anymore. Yeah, I think the plebeians are definitely taking action, which is good to see. Exactly what form that action was, obviously a little hazy, but definitely some action being taken. And I think also getting the tribunes back, having that protection back, having the elections happen like straight away, 
that's all really positive. And the fact that the Decembers formally resign in front of them, which they're obviously just thrilled to Whee! see. Yeah. I think that's all pretty good. So I, I think it has to be about a seven for them as well. It's certainly a step up from like previous episodes, that's for sure. Exactly. Yeah, I think realistically that because the legal aspect is moving in the right direction, it's like there is a sense of hope now on the horizon as a citizen. You're like, oh, some change is taking place. Some steps are being made. The Desivere's stepping down publicly is massive at this point. So, yeah, I'm with you on this one. And I think also the restoration of the Tribune of the Plebs because it seems like a foregone conclusion because we know that that office continues and becomes just as troublesome as ever as we've been highlighting this episode. But we know also that when we started down this road with the whole decemvirate and everything that was happening with the 12 tables, there were definitely some patricians that were seeing this as their opportunity to get rid of the tribunes who were seen as being just too difficult and giving the plebeians far too many concessions and far too many rights. So I still see it as a big positive that they come out of this whole process with what they started with at least. Yeah, definitely. And so the reinstatement of the Tribune of the Plebs is massive because that's not a foregone conclusion. And the idea that the Tribunal Assembly is also going to be taking on a more holistic role within the state yeah. Uh, in Dionysius' account is is huge as well. So Absolutely. I think there's, yeah, this is pretty exciting. So I feel like it's like a seven or eight from me on this one. Ooh, okay, seven, eight. What are we landing on? Ooh, ooh, what do you reckon? I feel like maybe a seven just because we haven't seen concrete yeah, it's all Change. it's all it's all words and stuff right now, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So until we actually see some true action, I feel like let's be a bit conservative. <laughs> all Fair right, enough. Dr. G. So we have seen ever so slight an improvement. Rome has finished up with a total of fifteen golden eagles. Wow, fifteen. Yeah. Still still a fail mark from old Rome there, but uh, you know, it could be worse I suppose (laughs) yeah I mean I think even though the second secession we can look at it as a good thing in in our mind's eye because it means that the plebeians are doing something they're essentially going on strike (laughs) like we are no longer going to be part of this state even though that is hugely positive there's obviously still a whole lot of negative stuff to wrap up and 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 as always, as always, Rome never does well for us when they're not at war. So. <laughs> this is true. I mean, they do like expansion as one of their things. Um, yeah. And they're definitely not doing that right now. This is a tough century uh, for Rome on that front, generally yes. speaking. So spoilers for the next 50 <laughs> years to come, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're getting there inch by inch. We'll see what happens. Yeah, and, and I think that the thing is, it's not like if, we look at, if we're looking at this from the Roman perspective, the Romans themselves, I don't think, would have looked at the Second Secession as being a good thing per se. I think they definitely see it as being a pivotal thing, as being a very significant moment in their history. But I don't think they would look at it as being a hugely positive time 
nor did they look at the 2nd December as being a positive time. So I think it makes sense that they're not scoring highly because if they were rating themselves, I don't think they'd be rating this very highly either. No, and it's that kind of thing that's really fascinating because the 12 tables is something that is so well known yes. about ancient Rome. It's the sort of like touchstone that a lot of people hit upon when you're like, oh, what do you know about ancient Rome? They're like, oh, you know, the 12 tables. And yet when you get into the history of this thing and how it was created for the Romans, this is a hugely controversial and conflicted period in their history and they themselves are struggling to understand it we can see from our sources that they're trying to sort of delve into the details to try and pull out something that would make it reasonable to understand what is happening here and they don't really come away with like anything positive here this is it's change and it's disruption and it's huge and it's hard seems to be the the sort of takeaways here. Oh, absolutely. I think there are definite holes in this narrative history that they have managed to piece together for themselves with things not entirely making sense. But certainly, certainly, we seem to come out of this time period with at least a law code, which is more than we apparently went in with. I mean, (laughs) it's not that there weren't laws before, but having this codified set of laws it's what we wanted. We have got it, even though it's taken a whole lot of heartache to get there. We'll get there in the end, guys. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. And we will catch you next time for more adventures in what will be the post 2nd December at Rome. Finally! <laughs>